Oh, I think we're there. I suddenly heard a bang as I put this down. Okay. Well, a few weeks ago, Saturday the 22nd of April was, for me, uh, a day I'm likely to remember. And it was because, after 50 years of living in Stratford, that was the, the morning that I finally made it across the road from where I live and into the town centre to specifically watch for the first time the unfurling of the flags of the nations and the processions down Bridge Street and way down to Holy Trinity at Shakespeare's grave. Um, and I, I just can't believe, having lived here for 50 years, that it took me so long to bother. And I had uh, awful uh, giggles because I suddenly thought of Catherine Tate. Am I bothered? Am I bothered? <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, let's get serious. Why I'm telling you this is that by... Uh, my bringing to mind what could be classed as a, a lack of recognition by me of God's bestowed Shakespeare gift to the world, which caused this somewhat 50-year imbalance, let's say, in my civic life, the nearest word I can find, uh, now became something special that day in my quiet time with God because it led me to seriously ponder a lack of balance in several of the, the more important aspects of my life. And so, as God is currently talking to me about my life, his same ask is that I unpack through an as and when mini-series of messages, which we'll be starting today, a little of what that same expectation for your believing walk might be and what it should look like in that each of us needs a balance between word and deed in our lives. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But the overall name for the, the whole of this mini-series, overarching it a bit, if you like, like an umbrella, will be one word, and that is balance. And the scripture for the whole series, overarching it, will be uh, from the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are found in the, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, between chapters 5 and 7, but this particular one is Matthew 5, 5, and it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let me just pray. Father, may today's message be without attempt to lay any foundation other than that which is laid and is Jesus Christ. Please break open the words that I speak and let your light shine, shine out, shine through. Amen. Okay, what do I mean by this word balance? Well, in general terms, I'm talking a slightly fancy word called equilibrium. And looking in the dictionary, equilibrium tells me that there are three facets. First it says that equilibrium is a state of physical balance. We all need physical balance to do things. Second, it says that equilibrium 
is a state of mental or emotional equanimity. And third, it says that equilibrium is a state in which the energy in a system is evenly distributed, forces, influences, etc., balance each other. And for us, that energy is dynamic. It's the Holy Spirit. As a boy, yeah, I was a boy once, believe it or not, I remember having a, a push bike with a dynamo. There were no gears on the bike, but I had a dynamo. But it only worked like the spirit of power that Norman, Norman Gidney prayed, preached a couple of Sundays ago when it was connected to the wheel and I pedaled. And so what I've been considering over the last few weeks is that if we are, if we're serious for God, then in our daily walk, our daily walk with Jesus, balance is pretty important. And also that it has to be a two-way process between what the kingdom of God offers us and what it demands of us. Perhaps an easier way of putting it is it's a two-way process between what Christ has done for us and what we are to do by him as Lord. And that's what I mean by a balance of word and deed. Otherwise, a walk along life's pilgrim way will become totally out of kilter, whatever kilter means. Um, and we may well fall short of fulfilling the life that God in his grace has planned for each of us. So, in essence, each individual message that I'll be bringing in this series will, will emphasize a form of movement. It'll be a movement each time from a particular pattern in our behavior, which we might come to recognize as perhaps advice, and movement to another pattern of behavior, which we hopefully will be able to come and see as virtue. Because our walk with Jesus for all of us is about growth through action as he changes us to be more like him. Well, on the same evening of that Saturday morning, when I watched these Shakespeare celebrations, the church here at Oasis, um, we just heard about reason to believe. Well, the first one was held um, that same evening. It was hosted by Elim's Mark Greenwood. And after Mark had finished speaking, he asked anyone to come forward, do you want any questions? What would you like to say? And um, there was one young man, uh, Sibon's son, Joseph, Joseph Dyer, who was brave enough to ask an extremely interesting question. And I was at the back, I couldn't totally hear, but I, I think it went something like this. Why, Joseph said, he asked, why does a God of love allow bad things to happen? Or suffering to happen? And to be fair, Mark Greenwood, uh, we know only briefly answered that question because it's something he's going to bring, uh, I think, in the third session more fully in the series. But today I've got to focus my message on this same question of Joseph's. Because before I can even begin to talk about any change in balance through movement and growth in, growth in our lives, um, I need first to put the spotlight, as it were, on God, who already has perfect balance. And 
who expressed it um, through the only human being ever to lead a perfectly balanced life. His one and only, if you like, natural son, the son of God who became the son of man. So the title of this first message under the umbrella of the whole series called Balance today is The Woes and Blessings of God's Perfect Balance. The Woes and Blessings of God's Perfect Balance. Here's the problem. The world out there thinks that God is here to keep us safe to keep us happy, to keep us healthy, to keep us prosperous, etc., etc. In other words, they believe he's here to serve our needs. But that isn't true. We are here, as you know, to serve him. I'm finding... I, have, I came to Christianity fairly late. I was 52. Uh, but I'm finding that there seems to be more and more a focus totally on a God of just love, love, and only love. Yet, every reference to the love of God that I see in Scripture is addressed to the redeemed who have been forgiven and who know that he loves them. It's forgiveness that opens up our understanding of God's love tell the world out there about it and they usually come back with two questions. First, how can a God of love allow all the suffering that goes on in this world? And that was Joseph's question. Pretty well in a nutshell, as Lorraine would say. <laughs> how Second, they would say, well, how can a God of love send anybody to hell? Get away. I don't want to know. How can it be? And I believe these questions came about because unbelievers have heard such a, so much church preaching to them about of unconditional love. No conditions at all attached to the love that it has for them. You see, Jesus didn't pray loving Father, he prayed righteous Father. And that's why the night before he died, he knew his Father was so righteous that he had to go through with you might say, well, doesn't Jesus tell me about the love of God? Yes, of course he does. Yet neither Jesus nor the apostles ever preached the love of God to unbelievers. In the book of Acts, which is all about evangelism, there's not one word about the love of God. What they did preach as a first concern to non-believers about God's character, and we're talking non-believers now, was that he is a holy and a righteous God. God's character is so good. And we say good, we, we sing sometimes about a good, good father. And he's so good, he's so upright, so righteous, he cannot forgive any sin. Let me repeat that. God's character is so good, so upright, so righteous, he cannot forgive any sin. Until it's paid for. Whew, I think it might have been sweating there a bit, eh? Forgiveness isn't about being let off. That's what I want to say. The sin has got to be paid for. 
Listen to what the Apostle, written it down here, listen to what the Apostle Peter says on the day of Pentecost. It's in Acts chapter 2 and it's verse 38. And the, the setting for it was that Holy Spirit has been given. We've just had ascension, now we're coming up to, which church doesn't seem to bother about too much for some re unknown reason, but we're now coming into uh, Pentecost. And there was Peter, they'd been given the power of the Holy Spirit, who was preaching to a massive crowd, um, and he told them that they had crucified Yeshua Masiach. They had crucified the living God. And they were, whoa, what are we going to do? And he said, this is what it says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the thing. That's the good news of the gospel message. Another one, a bit later on in Acts, chapter 22, verses 14 to 16. And this is where Paul, having been on his trip to Damascus, saw this bright light. By God's kindness, he was blinded. And Ananias is sent to give him his sight back. And it's him speaking. And it says, this is in Acts 22, 14 to 16. Then he said, this is Ananias to Paul, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Okay. On that basis, if we are all such sinners, why would this same God of righteousness even want to have created human beings in the first place? I honestly believe that it was our Father God's total enjoyment of such a wonderful relationship with the one son that he already had as part of the triune substance which we call God that actually decided him to start a bigger family. It's all about family. Created in his image and likeness in the human forms of Adam and Eve. And as the creator, he explained to them all the things that they shouldn't do. But he also, first of all, said to them all the things they could and should do. And just the one thing that they shouldn't do. And yet in allowing Adam and Eve the power of free will, when this first couple separately uh, decided to, in effect, do it my way, which is surely the very essence of sin, they were not voluntarily now living under his rule anymore, and thus they separated themselves from him. Let me explain it a little, a little further in the simplicity of what God the Father tells us in the Bible, of why not long after this creation story, this was such a massive problem for him. The whole point of the evening and the morning, uh, in, in Hebrew time, uh, 
the new day starts not at midnight but at dusk. So the whole point of the evening and morning, the mention of each one of the six days of creation, um, in the book of Genesis, the, the book of beginnings in the Bible, it talks about is that after each creation day of 24 hours, God said, it was good. Good. Just like the character of the creator, the totally upright and righteous one. And when the man and woman were created, whoa, the Bible says, and it was very good. Also that God would have a righteous universe with righteous people in it because he is righteous. So anyone who isn't, who is no longer like him, becomes a real God problem. Does that make, does it start to make sense? Is that, yeah? But our manual, this, this Bible, the one that it's wise for us uh, to take as the authority and the scripture and the, the structure, sorry, and the total logic for our life, illogical as it seems, it's truth, it informs us that God wasn't wrong-footed by any of this. Never was, never will be, and our problem, I believe, we resentful, if you like, ingrates with messed up lives, is daring to believe what he tells us. It's quite startling words. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 says, his secret purpose, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, from the very beginning is to bring us to our full glory. And the second letter of Peter, chapter 3, Verse 13 confirms it with a promise that this planned perfect universe under a totally righteous God is future guaranteed. It says, based on his promise, we wait for the new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. Okay, let's go on to God's solution now, to the, the rift of separation between us and him caused by we humans and known as the, the fall of man or uh, original sin because of the sin of Adam and Eve. This is a, a solution to the problem that he had before it even happened, before even the very foundation of the world. Listen to this again. Again from the Apostle Peter, uh, Peter 1 Peter 1.20 says, God shows him, that's Jesus, as your ransom before the world began. But now in these last days, he's been revealed for your sake. So, God allowed Satan to rule. And let's remember, Satan is just a creature like us. He's a created being. But he was allowed to rule as a punishment for us refusing his rule. But the good news for everyone out there is that our righteous God, through the Son of Man, in the greatest ever act of a desolate, cruciform, agape love, provided the one and the only, no other way, one and the only way out. For all who, through repentance, through turning, to returning to him, and belief will receive it. As a righteous God who so had to forsake Jesus on the cross as he took the sins of the whole world, what other way could he offer love to sinners out there? 
including those who don't want to take God's already paid for way out. This is why bad things happen in the world. When men give up on God, who speaks and acts in accordance with the purity of his own nature, this righteous God gives up on men. And he starts to withdraw his restraining hand. So we get more violence, more murder, more sexual deviance, and anything go anything goes type stuff becomes the norm as an ever more secular society turns away from God. And of course the reverse is true. So we have a God whose character is righteous. But what about bad things that happen to us, we who believe? Because we know that when we were born again and we repented and believed, we were forgiven and we were clothed in his robes of righteousness, which are not our own. Well, in the last book of the Bible, called Revelation, or more accurately, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, in chapter 3 and verse 19, Jesus told the church in Laodicea and so actually he's talking to us, the church here at the same time, and he says this, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous, perhaps enthusiastic, and repent. Now, please don't mistake the word chasten in the scripture as being the same as punish. It's not. Punishment flows from God's wrath and is for unbelievers who reject the only sin bearer who can save them <laughs> who can save them from the wrath of God chastisement or chastisement whichever way you want to say it flows from God's love for us and refines us to become more like him and where Jesus here also tells the church to repent, you're perhaps thinking, well, I repented when I believed. Sure, you did. Your eyes were opened when you heard the good news message and you turned yourself from darkness to believing the light, which means you were converted. And then you repented and believed and were then born again because you received a gift, a gift of the forgiveness of your sins from God on the authority of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus took you and loved you in exactly the same state that you were found in. But then immediately follows God's second word, work of grace. It's called sanctification. It sounds complicated. What it really means is the deliberate giving up of to, to Jesus, Jesus Christ, of your right to yourself. Whereupon Jesus will love you sufficiently, more than enough to see you through into that perfect state of righteousness that he has planned for you on the new earth where God will be all in all. If you get a minute this week, I'd love you to just have a look or re-look at the book of Jonah. It's only two pages long, so it'll take you perhaps ten minutes. And the whole point of the book of Jonah's life story, if you like, the strap line, is in just five words, is that Jonah, and for us also throughout our life story, need continually 
as we receive God's nudge, his nudge, to see God's viewpoint and turn. It's a continual action as we go along the way. And that's going to be the point of this mini-series as, we, as, uh, as well. That's how he works in us and how he works through us. And at times, in the light of the scripture I've just read out, it can be painful. Uh, because just as Jesus, coming as a man, totally emptied himself of his own will for the will of the Father, something the high-ups call kenosis, in order to do, yeah, just, he just wanted to do the will of the Father and he was totally emptied of himself. Um, so these God nudges are designed to do the same in us, to prepare us for our part in that totally righteous universe that he's promised to us. Um, last time I spoke, I spoke about a French philosopher, a woman called Simone Weil. And I just noticed another quote of her. She lived in well, around about the 1920s. And she says, every sin is an attempt to fly from emptiness. Because if we're emptied out to serve him, oh, it's the difficult thing, isn't it? I, I, I don't like to face up to it sometimes, but fortunately it's going to be God orchestrating the changes in me and my responsibility, our responsibility, is to stay close to him. One thing personally I am finding is the normality in Christians of this adversity, stroke affliction, which God uses to affect the changes in each of our lives as believers. And it confirms the truth. I heard John the other week talk about a pastor in America called Tim Keller. Um, and I read a quote of his which says, the joy of the Lord happens inside the sorrow. And I can testify to the truth of that. Merciful, I can also tell you that Satan is totally under God's control. If we don't believe that, we'll think we need to have a look at Job again, the book of Job. Um, and we therefore have a New Testament promise to believers that no temptation will ever be too big for us to say no. Listen to it. It's in 1 Corinthians 10.13. And it says, no temptation, this is Paul speaking, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray to Father God. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's the literal translation. Why do we ask that? I used to think it was, well, it's Middle English. It's, perhaps they haven't got it quite right. No, because although God doesn't tempt us, we're told God doesn't tempt us, but he can lead us into temptation by exposing us to it. Okay, we look first at how people already suffering in a fallen world, still refusing God's one and only offer of a way out, preferring to do it their own way, are open to bring further suffering onto themselves. And the Apostle Paul uh, in Romans, first and second books of, of chapters of Romans, says even those who haven't heard the gospel, 
God will still judge according to the light that they do have. Unto failure with no excuse in two points. First, that they, will, they fail to recognize his attributes in nature all around them. And second, they disobey the conscience that he has placed within us. Then we went on to look really briefly at why suffering also came into the lives or can come into the lives of believers sometimes because through no fault of our own we're simply in the wrong place at the wrong time but also through his testing of us to bring change in us. <clears throat> now finally we're going to look at how God's perfect balance affects all the nations in the world including ours. And this is where the title of today's message the woes and blessings of God's perfect balance will hopefully start to kick in and make some sense. <clears throat> Our God is the same God as the God of Israel. The Bible tells us that's because the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Israel is the God of all nations. Therefore, as the God of all nations, we can expect God to deal with other nations in the same way that he deals with Israel. We're told in the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 11, that he has no favorites. We're told in the book of Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't change, in other words. The Bible that Jesus read and quoted is what we call the Old Testament. So we might just get a terribly skewed, skew-whiff, if you like, view uh, of God if we only believe in the God of the New Testament. What links the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God is the same of both the one and the other. He's not a harsh one in the Old Testament and a loving, tender and kind one in the New Testament. He's the same God of both Testaments. To find out about Jesus, most of us read the New Testament. But to find out about God, we need to read the Old Testament too. Let's take the New Testament first briefly. First, I, only, I won't be long now, I'm finished. Most of us know, uh, especially in the Beatitudes, um, Jesus said, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are the, those who mourn, they will be comforted, etc. But he also said in the same way, woe to, woe to the rich. He also denounced and sent woes or curses uh, where he cursed the town of Chorazin, of Bethsaida, and Capinium, where he performed, yet the inhabitants, if you want to look it up at home, look on your computer, and you'll see that Capinium is in ruins. Where Chorazin was, there were just a few stones left. And Bethsaida has disappeared. The only time left on the Galilee is Tiberias, which wasn't cursed. You see, Jesus was a man of blessings 
and curses because he came to show us God. Okay, let's look at the God of the Old Testament to finish. God made a one-sided, unconditional covenant with Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And he continued it, he renewed it through the line with Abraham's son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, who became Israel. And he told Abraham in uh, Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will. and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that blessing through the ages has continued to preserve this chosen people throughout history. Every other nation, and I'm told there are at least perhaps a couple, up to a couple of dozen, which lost their own lands through warfare or whatever, um, defeating battle and the like, they were assimilated into other countries. And so they ceased to exist within three generations. The Jews lost their state, their land, even their language at one time. Yet they're still here thousands of years later. Now with their state back, but also their nation, they're still alive in every country of the world. The very existence of God himself, surely, but it's also the validity of God's covenant promise to Abraham to forever preserve this people. However, God also said to the children of Israel, promised land, and into the mountain areas where he took them, that he was bringing the Philistines from the land of Crete into the areas of the plains. We're told in the book of Judges, it's in chapter 3 and verses 1 to 4, that he would bring them, this is the Philistines, he'd bring them in and he'd bring other nations in. The Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, all the other parasites, whichever. He'd bring them in. And why did he bring them in? Toughen up the Jews to fight. And he said, if they forsook him, God would use these same people to bring the Jews he had this covenant with him, running back to him. Let me paint the picture for you. At Mount Sinai, they entered into a marriage covenant with God. God said, I will. And then he said, will you now promise to keep the promises you made with me through Moses? Yes, your will be done. And God said if they kept the covenant, he would bless them more than, or curse them more than any other nation if they didn't. And Moses, before he died, told them what both the curses that God would allow would be. Would you believe it? They're actually found in the book of Deuteronomy. And the theme of Deuteronomy is remember what God says. And they're all listed, anybody that wants to read them, you can see it in chapters 27 and 28 of the book of Deuteronomy. And the children of Israel did remember and did agree before God his promised blessings and curses upon them when they entered the land. Because as they did, and they came in Joshua, they entered the land, and the whole of Israel, can you imagine that couple of million people they came in and they came to two mountains 
one called Mount Ebal, which is called the Mount of Cursing, and another one, Mount of Blessing, or Mount Gerizim. And these two mountains, if you look them up, you'll see them there, and they form a perfect amphitheater between the two. And half of the tribes were on the Mount Ebal, the other half on the other side, Mount Gerizim, the Levites in the middle with Joshua. And Ian was talking about the festal shout last week. Can you just imagine it? They shouted out between them to each other from one side the covenant blessings and from the other side the curses for disobedience. And they all gave a massive amen of agreement after each one. You can look these mountains up on Google. They're still there, like these great the, the mountains come together with this cupped um, kind of amphitheater, semi-amphitheater between them. And latterly they've been tested for, to reveal perfect acoustics between them. And even a few years ago, we've, it's now been found, he was the one, as I say, finally brought them into the land. The biblical um, town in the valley, these, in these between these mountains was called Shechem. Abraham received the covenant there. Joshua received the covenant. It's now known as Nablus. So what's the point of all this that I'm saying to you? It's something I don't really like to tell in much of today's thinking. And that is that God himself is responsible for the suffering of his chosen people. But that's what the Bible says that God himself curses and blesses them. They submitted to be a model to the world in the land at the very crossroads of the whole world when they said, we will, to God. <clears throat> Even today, there are secular states, although they were made for a theocracy. The religious Jews are still following traditional rabbinic interpretations rather than scriptural. So, though God's unconditional and eternal covenant promise to preserve the nation is there to preserve them, he does so. Yet even though they're now back in the state of Israel, their enemies cause them daily to live in perpetual fear before a righteous God who preserves yet doesn't yet protect them until they come back into obedience. And the Bible tells us they will. And they will lead the rest of the world because they're the only people who know every language in the world. They'll tell everybody about the Messiah. But this is why, as the God of all nations, who is the same yesterday and today and forever, and without favorites, we also can expect God to deal with us and other nations in the same way that he deals with Israel, according to whether or not our nation gives up on God. It's in reading the Old and the New Testaments of his word against this background or this backcloth, if you like, of balance in understanding that God is a God who blesses and curses that we understand the grace, the undeserved favor of Jesus and his death on the cross. That's why the Bible was written. He died to take our curse. Paul's letter to the Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I'm going to finish now, just one minute. I quickly want to refer back um, again to us believers and to say that, unfortunately, adversity is often the only thing that will get our attention. You may have heard of C.S. Lewis, the the uh, well-known Christian um, writer. And there's a quote where he says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. If you like the sound of silence. He whispers to us in our pleasures. Speaks to us in our conscience. But shouts in adversity. If God doesn't get our attention through his blessings or by stinging us in our conscience, then he will certainly put us flat on our backs in adversity so that we can get the message. Is that not the curse that brings the blessing? God in his faithfulness, God in his kindness, and even though it hurts, this is is our God in his love, a love that is always in our best interest. The Apostle Apostle Paul's letter of encouragement to the early Christian Hebrews, there were no Gentiles, they were just the Hebrews initially, they were suffering terribly for their newfound faith. They couldn't get jobs, the family had shunned them, they were tortured. And he wrote the letter of Hebrews to them. And it says in chapter 8 and verse 9 that even the man Jesus had to learn obedience through suffering. He says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who will obey him. As we travel along life's pilgrim way, our God, kindness is returning us into his image and his likeness. Blessed are the meek. That's the submitted, the surrendered, for they, dare I say, we shall inherit the earth. My very last word. This elderly guy sat in front of you who gave out this message has given it in a spirit of love. If anything said in it for you, whether it spoke to you or not, or adversely affected you, either way, don't assess it through the person giving the message. Always take everything to Jesus. He knows. He knows. It's all about Jesus. Ask him. Okay, thank you for listening.